Hey guys, welcome to the Better Building Systems Podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with me today is Nick Taliska, Jim DePasquale, Mark Sankey, and a very special guest, Ryan Lean. And he's an associate partner with JBNB, who is Jaros, Bomb, and Balls. And we are the Building Hot Rodders. So um, before I let Ryan introduce himself, I'll just kind of outline what we will be discussing today. And we're going to keep the trend of discussion of the future going. So if you listen to our last podcast, we discussed the future of buildings and energy. And today we'll be taking a dive into the future of commissioning. So with that being said, Ryan, I will let you take the stage and give a brief introduction. Well, thanks, Clayton. Um, And thanks to all the building hot rodders. Much appreciation for inviting me on today. Um, Humbled that, uh, that that I was asked. So a little bit about myself, because you asked about 20 years or so in the industry already, which is pretty, again, mind-blowing to me. Um, seems like just yesterday. I started out of school, um, and that's an interesting kind of conversation on its own. I, I graduated in 2001 in New York City. If anyone recalls, that was not a good year. Um, September 11th had happened, and there wasn't a lot of opportunity. Um, I ended up joining a commissioning firm, had no idea what commissioning was, no clue. And so, you know, as a hot rod myself, I guess, coming out of college, I, I figured whatever I could handle it, loved what I was doing over two years, you know, wearing the, the, uh, the construction boots, getting dirty, really trying to figure out things, you know, with my hands and with my brains. And then after two years or so, it was a smaller firm and I, I kind of had some interest in learning a little bit about design. So I joined JB&B, um, Jaros Bauman Balls, like Clayton mentioned. I've been there for the last 17, 18 years. So worked in some design, which gave me a really good construct and background, like more of a foundation on why things are designed the way they were, because I'm sure we're going to get into it over the conversation today. But, you know, commission providers a lot of times like to say how bad the design is. But on having that baseline of understanding of why things are done the way they are really, you know, helped me, I think, in my career and have basically built a commissioning group and now a field group at JBNB and in parallel been working with the Building Commissioning Association, which is a nonprofit organization, um, the largest, really the only association purely dedicated to the profession of commissioning. And over time, both at the local chapter level and then essentially all the way up um, to the top and now the on the International Board of Directors as the president um, in 2021. My job is basically to you know lead the vision of the organization and where we're going to go. So Clayton, to your point of the future of commissioning and where it is, what does that look like? What do we need to be prepared for? Uh, you know, for when that when that comes. Well, we're uh, really excited to have you on the podcast. So thanks for joining us. And I think this is going to be a really interesting discussion. In our last episode, you know, talking about the future, I don't know, I can't, we, we went and maybe all of us went into the conversation with a, a good thought of what we thought the future may be. And then you start talking about it and, and what is on the horizon and, and even further in the future. And it's a, uh, it's crazy to think about how fast things are moving, you know, technology based and just people based the world. So I think this will be a really fun discussion. And I'm curious to hear what everyone has to has to say about it. But if you think about how fast it's moving, I would almost argue our industry is almost one of the last large industries to adopt this smarter technology that's happening, right? You see it in all these different industries, everything you could do from your phone. 
And now we're starting to see, you know, commercial real estate and some other industries that we're dealing with, right? Like, you know, warehouses, um, you know, at the rapid pace at which things are being delivered to our homes and where these warehouses need to go up, data centers, et cetera. And we're starting to see them adopt a lot of these technologies. And again, as building commissioning providers, what are we doing to ensure that whole building commissioning is happening and not kind of the antiquated, um, you know, way that it was traditionally just the HVAC systems to a certain extent? I think this conversation is going to drive Mark up a wall, though, because he's a <laughs> he's a boots on the ground, you know, get dirty, bring your handkerchief, right, Nick, kind of guy. So all this technology uh, available, it'll be an interesting conversation. So it's kind of funny uh, for our listeners, too, you know, we... Uh, had before we were the building hot rodders had a, a whole commissioning podcast series and I'm really excited for this conversation because we covered I think commissioning uh, in a pretty detailed manner throughout our I don't know a dozen episodes but we never really discussed commissioning its origination and kind of how it has evolved I don't think so yeah I think this will be really cool to talk about uh, with that being said what like you, you mentioned, Ryan, the beginning, you know, of what commissioning was and what I see, maybe that's kind of started in the 80s. Commissioning became a thing to whatever extent you would consider it. Yeah, I mean, it, it was probably way before that. I mean, you know, even before the 80s, it, it really um, kind of started itself uh, with in the Navy. Um, and as new ships were kind of being constructed for the Navy um, before they were placed into service, um, all of those systems on those ships needed to work. I mean, if you talk about single point of failure and critical systems, you're talking about a Navy ship, right? Right. Things can't go wrong. So not the ship's engineering plant, the weapons systems, the electrical systems, right? All of that needed to be installed and tested. So if you want to give credit to some industry, I would give credit to the Navy, really. Right. So n all new ships, even today, again, go under these sea trials and, and identifying deficiencies. And in fact, you know, JBB has had some success actually hiring Navy engineers, some nuclear engineers also that would that resided on ships. And they are amazing employees for commissioning because of that kind of hands on experience that maybe that'll reinvigorate Mark into some of my earlier comments. <laughs> but then after the Navy, again, when it gets into buildings, you talk about, yeah, like you said, Clayton, in the 80s, where it started to gain some traction as to, okay, we do this on ships. Why aren't we doing it in buildings? I mean, I still say that today, why it's not completely adopted. You know, commissioning back in the 80s was kind of viewed as a startup process. There's a clear beginning and end. It was a high cost because it wasn't really understood that well. Again, mm -hmm. same arguments could be made about today. And there was really no kind of standard methodology. It was just very fly off the seat of your pants, right? And then in the 2000, 1990s, 2000s, et cetera, when I started getting involved, you started to have some government type standards. You start to have some growing demand for green buildings. And now, you know, with the driver of lead in the USGBC, making it a prerequisite, meaning a requirement to do commissioning. So that was a huge driver, obviously. But right. now you have a more like diverse mix of players in the market. You have more standardized protocols to a certain extent, right? You could argue they're not completely aligned. You have better access to qualified engineers. Also, again, another topic you could talk about who's really qualified. And so <laughs> now states are getting into it. You're talking about the current day, right? Um, 
there's many bubbles and I'm to a certain extent, you know, uh, I would say to a certain extent, I'm kind of in the dark on some of these other geographical locations because New York City is so progressive from the standpoint of it's in the codes as a requirement. Of course, there's a difference between the minimum and what's the right thing to do, but at least right. that allows, you know, that industry to thrive. So today I would say much more adoption, not completely universally adopted the way it should, you know, but we're, but we're in a, we're in a good place for sure. That's interesting. Yeah. Ryan, I wanted to follow up on, I'm going back to like, you know, the 1980s when this started and, and, you know, we all have a, a quite an affinity for commissioning and its role in everything that we do, we don't all do it exclusively, right. but we certainly realize the benefit of it. But what are your thoughts? And I know this was before you maybe started in the in industry, but what do you think was the, the impetus for when people started saying, why don't we do this in buildings? And if we're talking about the 1980s, was this more energy related or was this when sick building syndrome also became on the scene? You know, the answer to all those could be yes. I think at the end of the day, what it comes down to today and certainly back then was dollars. And so, you know, it's still, we are still today trying to figure out how to prove this return on investment, right? And there's been studies, there's been surveys done. Um, the problem is as buildings become more technologically advanced and the systems we're putting in change even in this current pandemic environment where now we're going and ensuring filtration is at you know levels to which you know the microbial agents are being caught um, now you're driving up more energy but to the same token you could be reducing it in other places so everyone's always working or working towards that that dollar saving that utility cost so i think in the 80s when utilities were potentially getting, you know, far out of control, um, some of the price gouging started to happen, then they started to think of it potentially. I think also operations mm. staff, you know, started to get smarter. Buildings had to operate differently. I mean, I, I still, um, you know, pneumatic systems, right? They're still around. And I know a, a, a lot of uh, engineers are still um, would rather have a pneumatic system than a DDC. But all those things come with operational issues that that have to be dealt with. So I think it was Kind of a combination of cost and, and you know some vice president in the c-suite saying how are we reducing this finally because uh you know it's affecting the bottom line combined with some technological advances you know even in the 80s things were happening from the building management side uh, so i think it all had to do with that always that balance yeah well the, i i think too if you look at what was happening and we'll go back to before the 80s the 70s there was a enormous you know the economy was relatively right. strong there was lots of construction and typically before there was commissioning there was a guy or you know person called the clerk of the works that would be hired directly by the owner that was you know at that time basically the commissioning agent make sure everything works well when the 80s rolled around as you've already identified fuel prices went up there was you know i bought my first house in the 80s and i was uh, elated to get a 13% more. <laughs> oh, man. So, uh, I mean, you go back to that, there was hyperinflation yep. on the energy side. There was an enormous drive to push down construction costs. And the first things that felt pressures were any services or, or uh, intangibles that could be eliminated. So the first thing that went was the clerk of the works. The second thing that was compressed was the percentage of fee that would be 
ascribed to the engineering firm. So engineers that were typically involved during the startup process pushed that out of their scope. So no longer do we have technical resources available during the startup period to manifestly understand and uh, put a rubber stamp or a sticker on it and said this was all good. So there was a huge vacuum of uh, technology and technical ability to determine whether a building was or wasn't good. And hence the, you know, the systems grew and became more complex and the need arose and was almost immediately filled by the commissioning process, which, as you said, came out of the Navy, Navy and the nuclear programs, you know, new plants get commissioned, boats get commissioned. Well, with the increase in complexity, buildings needed to be commissioned. Hmm. Well, it ties together kind of the elusive hunt, uh, you know, as Ryan was talking about to prove the, uh, the return on investment, you know, we're often surprised how much more commission there should be in certain projects we see that's left behind because maybe the value isn't recognized. Part of the problem is, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like anything else. It's not black and white. There's shades of gray, right? Because I'm going into buildings still today, right? And doing surveys to, I, I never use the word insure, so I'm not going to say that, but confirm right? That systems are operating the way they're supposed to. And I'm finding outside air dampers that have been literally locked shut for years, right? And so, you know, in order to get occupants back in the buildings, we want to make sure the air change rates are, you know, as they should or more, um, the filtration is correct, etc. Um, and so by doing that, I'm commissioning, right? I'm in, I'm functionally testing that an air handler is working the way it's supposed to, but I'm also driving up utility yeah. costs. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, yeah. So the return on investment isn't great look on paper for that particular example, although the payback in theory that no one's getting sick and people are able to work is, you know, immeasurable. So it it's hard. You know, it's kind of that invisible thing that sometimes is difficult to oh, measure. Yeah, but then you could you could go ahead and say, you know, you could also have prevented simultaneous heating and cooling or, you know, right. valve hunting and all that stuff that does save energy. So, or I mean, worst case is you get a lawsuit. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't kid yourself. That's reality. Yeah. That's yeah. expensive too. Sick building syndrome. Somebody gets a headache. They come in and find your building with a dowel board over the outside air dampers and it happens. Uh, guess what? Somebody's paying. Oh, yeah. It, the interesting part, though, if you read some of the, you know, the original literature that came out of the USGBC on why green buildings, they talk about natural light, they talk about increased ventilation, right? And those things tend to drive sick days down, like you mentioned, um, and right. also engagement up, right? More awareness, less people falling asleep at work, you know, things like that. So, you know, there, there's also those other kind of considerations that are hard to measure, although financially again if you're a firm that operates with hours that needs to get things done then you're you're driving your bottom line up you know even though your utility cost may be slightly higher right because now you have more glass which means more cooling and more outside air for people um, so it's constantly a trade-off yeah um i agree so and that's probably why like even today you know there's still a, a maybe a struggle to convince building owners that commissioning has value. And that's probably why there are, you know, there's some legislation to whatever extent to require it. But as we've all seen and maybe experienced firsthand, not being the ones doing it, there's still the just go in and check the box kind of commissioning going on, which 
Well, and honestly, we make a lot of our business on the forensic side of engineering. And typically what you find is when you go into a building where they're having issues, they're, you know, experiencing either poor ventilation, uh, uncomfortable conditions, widely variable internal conditions, you can pretty much assume that the building hasn't been commissioned. And it's almost a one-to-one correlation between either lack of commissioning or the quality of commissioning and the ongoing operational problems that uh, the building's experiencing. So this is like the old Pennzoil commercial. You can pay me now or pay me later, but it's, it should be done. Paying later always costs more too. Exactly. And that's, you know, sometimes we, we, we like to say the saying, you know, well, the difference in cost pays for a lot of Tylenol um, that someone's going to have to take, but it's not also a static thing, meaning, you know, commissioning a lot of people equate it, um, first of all, a lot of people equate it incorrectly to startup, and we know that. But also a lot of people equate it to a single process that happens once. And when you think of the lifeline of a building, no matter what it is, whether it's a warehouse, data center, hospital, commercial office building, the design and construction, you know, call it anywhere from two to five years, depending on the size or less, um, the entire lifeline of the building is 50, 60, 70 years. So you're talking about you know, just that first 5% maybe to a certain extent. And so, you know, you could, anyone on this call, right, we can go into a building and make sure that something's working on Tuesday and on Wednesday, in theory, something could happen, right? It could be a manual error. It could be an automatic error. Some valve could go out of calibration, et cetera. So it's not a one-time thing. And that's the hard part also, because when you're selling commissioning and trying to provide value, um, to your client, it also depends what budget it comes out of, right? It could be the capital budget. It could be the operating expenses. Most likely on a new construction project, you're competing for the cost of the build, which may not be translated to that who's going to run it and operate it. Um, so it's, you know, it's difficult. And so is it coming out of my pocket or is it coming out of someone else's pocket? And who's getting the benefit, right? Um, which is always an interesting kind of conversation that, that, we have to have as commissioning providers versus like an architect or an engineer that has that that's purely out of the construction budget because once that's done then the building is up and you don't necessarily have to look at it too often unless you're making you know moves as you're changing oh great points ryan i really think that is a key part of it you know you talk about the whatever it's a if it's a persuasion campaign or you know trying to demonstrate the value of commissioning but a lot of it has to do with the paradigm in which we're looking at it. You know, is it a one-time thing or the combination of both? You know, obviously you want to set things up appropriately to start, but there is that longer, longer term in mind that you need to focus on as well. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I, I have to imagine though, you know, obviously like the continuing continual commissioning is important, but like to what extent is there like a, I don't know, a correlation between, you know, quality commissioning and the need for continuous commissioning. Like, you know, if you, you go in and you pay top dollar for the best commissioning agent, you know, at the construction phase, you know, start it up, it's commissioned, everything's working perfectly, tuned perfectly, so on and so forth. Um, could one argue that obviously things change, but maybe since it was set up, and commission properly, you you have a little while until you have to 
be too concerned about things? I don't know. <laughs> that That's a function of so many variables. And I understand, and, yeah. Especially, I mean, Nick, how many projects have you been on, uh, ESCO projects, where on day one, or year one, the cost avoidance is as expected, everything's hunky-dory, and then you start to see degradation and, and, and worse degradation, and you go back in during the M&V process or as a separate process, and you find out, oh, this is overridden, this is turned off, this has been added, this has been adjusted, and there's been no commissioning or recommissioning done in any way, shape, or form. I mean, it's a it's an inevitability. Yes. When, you know, guys are getting calls that, and, and we've seen it firsthand. The operation staff is getting cold calls. Well, we'll just adjust up the hot water schedule. We'll just make these simple changes to change comfort. We won't do a rebalance. We won't do the things uh, and everybody yep. will be happy. Mm-hmm. But then when the utility bills are coming in over the summer and somebody left the hot water pumps in manual and the radiation schedule is still calling for hot water, and we're cooling the building and heating the building at the same time, they wonder why the utility bills went up. Well, this is, you know, it's all avoidable if there's a plan and generally the plan falls to commissioning. Yeah. And Clayton, I would argue that I I know maybe you're not going to want to hear this, um, (laughs) but, but I would argue it doesn't matter, right? You, you want someone that's competent, that has the best skills and the best practices establishing your baseline 100 percent right you want to make sure that you know this building which i talk about all the time these buildings no matter what they are again it's not ikea furniture right there's no instructions and everyone does it the same right they're all custom to a certain extent yep Um, and so someone has to make sure that everyone's talking to each other because that's a lot of the time what i do right i play quarterback and i bring everybody together Mm -hmm. um but you know, no matter how it's set up, and even if it's set up poorly, um, do you, I mean, like your car, for instance, think of your car, right? You buy the best car out there, whatever it is, I don't know, whatever brands you like the best. Do you drive it for the entire life without never getting it checked up? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You know that they set the car up perfect when you start, when you bought it, right? I mean, the steering wheel was perfectly aligned and your radio stations work and, you know, Yep. whatever else there is now, this new technology. But at the end of the day, you get it tuned up. You have an oil change, right? Yep. There's moving parts in buildings. So, And there's real human beings and people that mean to do the right thing. But sometimes, like mm-hmm. you were saying, you know, for a cold call, instead of figuring out that there's, you know, a broken damper somewhere or, you know, you're simultaneously heating and cooling, yeah, you jack up the, the set point. Um, and that's obviously wrong. And guess what? People are busy and it's left and it's forgotten about until someone goes in and does an assessment. So my argument always is always do the right thing at the beginning and yep. always realign at some interval. I can't argue with that. I, I completely agree. Um, it's just interesting looking, you know, on, I guess you, you consider me ha- having limited experience in the industry, just getting in, it would have been what, four years ago, three or four years ago. Um, we spent a lot of time boots on the ground on a very, very big, pretty complicated project commissioning. And, um, you know, we got down to the, the PID control loop for all the air handlers, VAVs, so on and so forth, and made sure it was perfect. And everything's been running, I would consider pretty smoothly all the way up till now, Mark. And this has been what, two, two years. And then we just got off a job or we're on a job 
that commissioning wasn't done too well and it's been a year-long struggle <laughs> so I don't know, I'm just trying to, to to bring it in perspective I guess on that regard from what I see too it goes back to those fundamentals Clayton that yeah, I was yeah, just talking absolutely. about I mean yep. do it right from the start and you guys didn't go in there willy-nilly you knew what the plan was and you yep. stuck to it and you adjust mm-hmm. when you need to uh yeah it's amazing we all agree on all these things but yet we still see so many you know complications out there so what is the building commission and association doing about this <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> well thanks nick um you know th- this is so we've been around since uh technically 1998 we were incorporated in the state of washington in 1998 we changed our name to the building commissioning association in 1999 originally it was the northwest building commissioning collaborative and and you know, when we talk about the history also, you know, commissioning was more prevalent on the West Coast. I don't like giving the West Coast credit for a lot, but I'll give them the credit here. Um, <laughs> they were more progressive than the East Coast for sure and the center of the, the United States um, when it came to that. So our mission, um, like the mission of the, the Building Commissioning Association is to drive the built environment to the highest levels of optimization. And I know, again, that's that's kind of the... I like to say BHAG, the, the big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, I use that term quite often. And that's kind of our big goal, right? Make the world a better place, kind of one building at a time, one step at a time. I like to say that commissioning providers are the superheroes, right? That are, you know, not, not known to, to the everyday man and woman out there. Um, so the mission intentionally has no commissioning in the word. Right. In, in, I'm sorry, in the phrase, it's to drive the built environments, the highest levels of optimization. So that just means, again, doing what we're talking about on a day to day basis, have commissioning be the mechanism or some other you know, means that you get there. Um, but make make the buildings that we're working in, that we're working in every day, um, a better place. So and like I said, it's the only association dedicated to commissioning. There's other associations out there. But a lot of those associations that are out there are either tied to other things like ASHRAE or balancing organizations, etc. We're the only ones that just focus on this, which is important because then at, at the start of this podcast, when we talk about whole building commissioning, you know, we're really talking about providers that do everything right from from fire alarm to cellular to you know, electrical systems, and then, of course, um, the core kind of HVAC. And our, our membership is is wide. We're international. We have right now, you know, about 1,100 members or so, 30 outside the North America. We actually have a lot in Canada. They are very progressive also. I love our Canadian members. Um, very, very active. And then, you know, of course, we have certifications, you know, um, both for the firm and for the individual. We have local chapters, like I mentioned, which is so important because, you know, commissioning to a certain extent is kind of parochial, meaning, you know, I've talked to people around the country that that do commissioning, again, on the West Coast versus where I am in New York City. And it's slightly different. Again, the process, the overall process is pretty much the same, but how they go about handling meetings and working with people is a little bit different. So those chapters kind of help in those different geographical locations, you know, work with, with, and it's, it's interesting because like some other associations, you're really dealing with your competitors all the time, right? I mean, all of the members, not all of them, but a lot of them are commissioning providers. And in theory, they're competing against each other. But, but the nice part about it is that, 
you know, we're always trying to share lessons learned in the in the goal of bringing up the industry together and making it better, making people more educated, making owners and clients more educated about what's right and wrong. So that's kind of Nick to answer your question from before. Um, you know, granted, we're not holding classes on saying, here's what you need to know, but but just by more visibility and training and everyone who joins the association needs to sign the best practices, which basically means um, that everyone's doing, you know, right by the client and trying again to establish that baseline that we just talked about to the best extent possible so that when I lose a job um, for commissioning to one of the other members, I can sleep well at night knowing that that client essentially is getting the right work versus someone else, you know, that's not aligned in the same kind of uh, uh, respect. Absolutely. No, and, and undoubtedly you've seen the uh, the impact the association has made over the years, and uh, I'm sure your membership has grown and yeah. continues to be a big influence on buildings. And, you know, we talked about the past and all the changes, and certainly going forward, you know, there's, there's no defined trend of how things are going to look and a lot of uncertainty. So uh, now more than ever, seems like a very important uh, group to be involved with in your with your buildings. You know, I think I have a question. I think a, re a recurring theme I've noticed in the last couple of podcasts comes to like retro commissioning or some sort of yearly or some sort of testing. You know, we've, right. we've had some conversations where I think all of us have seen outdoor air dampers, you know, walled over, shut, locked shut. Um, things that could impact the public health, especially after this pandemic. Um, things we've seen simultaneous heating and cooling. And, you know, like fire protection systems, they get yearly tests, but like a building's ventilation system or HVAC system, you know, in these larger, more complicated commercial systems serving the public, they tend to, as far as I know, there's there isn't any legislation or regulatory requirements for any type of yearly testing. So I guess, Brian, do you have any thoughts on that and maybe some insight onto uh, where that might maybe headed? You, you know, you're right. Um, so it's interesting. I've been dealing with it. I'm sure you've been dealing with it to a certain extent. In New York State now, for reopening of public assembly spaces, right, such as theaters and, and um, venue halls, et cetera, now needs certified letters from an engineer, a professional engineer, basically saying exactly what you're talking about, Jim, that, you know, ventilation systems are, are in alignment with, you know, COVID practices. Now that this is very recent, obviously, but we have no idea what the future is going to hold. Maybe due to what's going on right now, there is an added focus on that. And so that maybe that does become a reoccurring thing. Although, you know, I would imagine someone is going to have to put it in a code at some point, right? Because a lot of the ongoing fire protection systems that you're talking about that need to be, quote unquote, recertified year after year, that, that's in the NFPA, which is quoted by, you know, your local state codes. And so I see that happening. I really do. I mean, I never thought I'd be sitting here over the last 12 months and writing the amount of letters that I've been writing in, in, in a bunch of these different, you know, locations all over the state. So I think it's happening. Um, on, on the Building Commissioning Association side, what I will tell you is that, you know, we have our best practices committee 
And in the past, our best practices were just for new buildings, right? And that's where a lot of the, the industry was driving again through the USGBC and lead, et cetera. But we just put out last year an ongoing commissioning best practice. And that's like, that's monumental. So from your, from the standpoint of, you know, who's checking this year after year. And by the way, it doesn't have to be a third party, right? Of course, I think any of us on this call would love to get the work. Uh, but it could be done by operating engineers, facilities managers, et cetera. Like you can right. do this in house, right? Yep. And that's an important distinction. But the ongoing commissioning can be a manual operation, right? Which is going in, like we were talking about earlier, maybe every couple of years to realign everything. Or it can be done through fault detection. And that's, again, more software that could be an add on to your current BMS system. You know, essentially what you have, you can, you can soup it up a bit to an extent. And then you're monitoring it basically remotely. And that's, I, I love the concept of fault detection for commissioning going forward because now you don't have to find something necessarily. You're being told what's happening as long as you, you know, write these rules the right way where it's, it's, you know, alerting you to what's going on. And it's more than just the BMS saying I'm at a high temperature alarm. It's, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar enough with the fault detection systems, it's writing these rules saying, okay, if my high temperature in a room is at 80 degrees and my standard set point is at 72, right? I don't have to wait for that eight degree change to happen. I could say that if the, the room was at, you know, call it 74 over 24 hours, I may have a problem with my coil. And so that was never able to be done before. Sure, you can run trends and things like that. But all this software out there right now is part of the new technology and where the world is going and where our industry is going. It's really exciting because we don't have to wait for the codes to monitor this stuff, right? The, the good developers, the good building owners and, and, and things can install these systems. Of course, they have to be commissioned and calibrated. But then once they're working, you have this huge opportunity to make sure that your systems are always, you know, at their optimal performance. So that, that, that's really exciting to me. You know, it's, it's funny, uh, Jim, I'm glad you brought up that point. And Ryan, thanks for diving into that. Our last podcast episode, I was just asking in specific regard to the, the filtering for New York state, who is, who's monitoring this, who says this is okay. So now I have my answer, which I'm glad. <laughs> well, I, I have a question. Is that required for all of New York state, Ryan, or is that no, so New it's, York city? It's required. Well, so it's required for all of New York state for public assembly spaces. Like so a shopping need, mall. Right. Got so it. if you're, okay. if you need to reopen and you're a public assembly space, there are rules you have to follow. If you're a private developer, then in theory, again, you're supposed to follow the rules, quote unquote, but the state isn't necessarily going to, you know, tell you what to do fact certain. Right, right, right. I think fitness centers as well. Right. As part of that, I believe. Last, yeah. You're right. You're right. That you know what that gym that came out a while ago yeah. actually when they started to reopen and so that the, the uh, public assembly is a little bit new because you could imagine people are probably not you know ready to go back to a movie theater or concert hall so quickly. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm glad that if you're if you're following through on the the building hot rodder series, your our questions have been answered today from our last episode. So that's cool. So, but right, I agree with pretty much everything you just said, but I've been developing a weekly held opinion. I could be convinced otherwise. I just need you guys to help me. <laughs> um, I, you know, these publicly, I, I'm still stuck on this idea that 
like ventilation systems and HVAC systems are not periodically tested or certified, you know, we'll use the analog of right. fire protection systems. You know, there's, there's an expectation by the public that when they walk into a public building that, you know, the fire protection system is going to work as designed or, you know, it's, you know, it's been tested or you expect it to be tested in, in a working, in working order. Um, I guess my disagreement would be on who's responsible for doing that. I'm starting to notice a trend where like a building owner, if there's not like a direct, uh, like if they, if they have a direct cost where they have a hundred percent increase in cost, but the risk may be a tail risk and not something that is quite as apparent to them. For example, maybe someone getting sick and then the, having their ventilation system blamed. I'm, I'm starting to get the feeling that that may require third party testing or some sort of third party certification for buildings that are open to the public. I guess, what do you guys think about that? Rather than like self verification. Yeah, the things that get tested, whether they're fire alarm, elevators, whatever they are, yeah. uh, you're right. There's a direct and immediate threat. So now we introduce this third uh, set of systems, be they HVAC or ventilation, however you want to want to call it, and yeah. the risk is intangible. And if I'm you know, the building owner or the developer or whomever pays the mm -hmm. bills, they have to look at it as who pays for this. And if it's me, those costs have to go somewhere, whether it's in higher rent or whether it's in some other mechanism, or if there's no downside, no penalties, yeah. it won't get done. There has to be a carrot and a stick. I would, I would say it more bluntly. Um, at, at, the, at the end of the day, if someone dies in a fire in your building, they died in your building. Right. If the if and there's no from right. a liability standpoint, you can't mm -hmm. argue. Right. Were your systems effectively allowing anyone right. to exit the building in a safe manner? If someone comes down with a horrible, you know, respiratory disease, how do you know it came from yeah. the building? Yeah. So, you know, I, I hate to kind of argue that point, but at the end of the day, I mean, un, until there's some better way to clearly define that, which is, you know, happening in your building from, from that standpoint, you know, it's, it's going to be hard. I, I think what's going on today is going to change it a bit, but not well, effectively, you know, 180. I agree. It'll be hard, but just take a look at a couple of industries, you know, like the asbestos industry. For example, was your illness caused by exposure to asbestos? Right. There's a or, or fiberglass. Uh, there's a class action lawsuit. So now, if you potentially either you know got some illness not COVID related or worse, an illness that is COVID related because you were in a sick building, it's not just a single individual right. you have to deal with. It's the class action lawsuits. Uh, <laughs> I would much rather deal with a single individual than a class action lawsuit if I were. Yeah, I mean, Legionnaires is the same example, right? Um, you know, right. and it's, it's right. a hell of a lot cheaper, you know, to fix your outside air systems and deal with that later. But it's kind of like the insurance policy, right? Do you want to pay for insurance now or deal with the consequences later? Um, I, I hope it's the former, to your point, Jim. Yeah, that's an interesting discussion to have. Um, you know, I... I'm glad we're going through it today. 
So thinking about maybe what we just talked about can have a little bit of effect, you know, with what about how does technology come into play with this though, as well? You know, like you were saying, you can have systems that now monitor, I mean, any BMS system can monitor and alert you of an issue and tell you what's going on. Maybe something like that'll end up coming into play with air quality too, if people start paying more attention to. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. I just actually published an article on LinkedIn uh, yesterday about this, but um, there's a lot of indoor air quality monitoring going on right now. Some of it's temporary, some of it's permanent. Um, And it's all, again, especially in New York City's high density areas where you have large commercial high rise buildings where, you know, developers are doing whatever they can to kind of make it a place for people to come back to work. So what can they do? Well, let's be transparent, which I love, and let's show what's going on in the space. So it's not, you know, an assumption or a statement without fact, but, you know, it, it truly is what's going on. Is that going to be the future? Are we going to have these indoor air quality monitors? Are we going to have, I mean, again, going out to the technology, you know, there's social distancing cameras out there, right? Oh my gosh. How close are you to someone else? Um, There's going to be scanners in the building potentially, right? That, that as you walk through the door, you're going to see what your, your temperature is on your forehead. Right. And if, and if it's, it's red, you know, or if it's over the limit, 100.4, whatever that temperature is, right. Then ultimately you're going to be um, asked to leave. And so I think there's going to be a point in time and, you know, I've been hearing this a lot. I don't know how I feel about it and I'm curious to hear how you feel about it, but I'm hearing a lot about, you know, this is almost a point in in our lives in time, in our generation where it's going to be pre COVID and post-COVID, right? That which we did before this will never be the same anymore to that which we're going you know, forward. And so you know, we're all connected to our phones to a certain extent, maybe some of us more than others. I fall into that latter category. I can't get it off of me. And you know, when we walk into buildings now, we may not have IDs anymore. The, the phone may just tell us wh- which elevator to go to. And you know, when again, when we want food, it may come to our desk. When we want to potentially change the HVAC, we may have personal air adjustment at every seat. So, so things are going to be different. And, and again, I think commissioning, generally speaking, is going to touch all of it. Because, you know, the more automation doesn't mean less human interaction. Um, typically, at least right now, it means more, right? Making sure that we talk about that baseline is established. You know, I will say um, I agree just because of, you know, the evolution of technology and the cost and everything where we'll be able to use technology to, you know, improve lives, people's lives, make it easier to do whatever or just have access to more things. But in the, in the regard to COVID, I'm, I'm really interested to see how it plays out because part of me, I don't know, maybe this sounds horrible to say, it just thinks that it's just going to kind of go back sort of to the way it was before. I don't know. It's horrible, Clayton. It, I know it's horrible. People are just going to go back to, you know, cramming themselves in a subway and it's never going to get cleaned. And, you know, we're going to close our outside air dampers and people stop thinking about ventilation. And, you know, I, I think it's all connected to what Jim brought up with, you know, who's checking these things, what Ryan's talking yeah. about with yeah. transparency which we are in a whole new era of transparency and we should demand this, you know, from places where you had that expectation of feeling safe. I get that. Yep. Uh, the technology on top of that, the fault detection, I think is very interesting. And I agree, you know, it's not, you know, 
boots on the ground, but you know, there's a time and a place for that. And there's a time and a place for, you know, distributed technology and everything and to use it to make the buildings better. But like we were talking about, I don't know if it was last episode or not, or maybe always we talk about it, but you know, that, you know, if you go into buildings now and say, well, now you're going to have, you know, whatever, extra filtration, more airflow. And then you realize, whoa, you guys weren't even ventilating your buildings before. You know, <laughs> exactly. this is going to hurt. Yeah. I mean, that when it, that's when it becomes a big problem. And then yep. I think it goes back to Clayton, what you were just saying. Then people are like, okay, nobody's looking. Let's tighten it down. Yeah. Nobody's gotten sick. Yeah. Whatever. Well, but, but not to, I mean, if it, if, individuals and groups can't take responsibility don't take responsibility unfortunately that's when there needs to be legislation and the government steps in that's all there is to it so if it does get to the point where clayton as you say the, the people are just overcrowding they're you know there's total disregard for distancing the subways are dirty the building you know there's no none of that happening then we'll see legislative responses and more oversight because we're not bright enough to figure out that social distancing works. You know, there's a reason the uh, flu basically didn't even appear this year. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's just one of those things where unfortunately, if we're not bright enough to figure it out on our own, we'll get help. Uh, Mark, just to add on that, I think individuals, you know, it's difficult sometimes to take responsibility and all that, but organizations are very different animals when it's comprised of multiple individuals. And, and we've seen that with just what we're talking about with building commissioning, you know, who's really responsible, who benefits, who pays. So I think it can get kind of a little more nebulous when you have an organization of people. Yeah, I agree. But there has to be an organizational ethic that says we will provide an appropriate environment that is safe for people to occupy buildings. I agree with you, Nick, it, and it is organizational based, but organizations are comprised of individuals. Individuals lead and drive the organization and it needs to be. Oh, touche. Nice one. Bring it all the way around back. And you're right. And that goes to, to developing that culture. And that's what I really picked up when Ryan was talking about all the members of the building commissioning association, you know, right. sign this guiding document. And that's a start, and it's a big start. No, I agree. Yeah, and, and Clayton, I don't know if you've been on a lot of subways in Manhattan. I can tell you I will never in my life, mark my words, and we could do a, we could do another uh, yeah. podcast in years. <laughs> I will never go on again without a mask in my life. I'm not kidding. Um, Probably not, I, right. I take public transportation. I'm on it for four hours a day. I come in from Long Island into Manhattan between an hour train and a half an hour subway and then walking. And so, I mean, forget it. I will never go on it again. <laughs> so I think to a certain extent, um, there's a lot of it's going to it's going to take a lot of inertia to get people out of the yep. house after being home for a year to go back to their offices. I mean, it's just the reality. So different places. I know Florida, Arizona, some other you know states are are back to normal, quote unquote. And so maybe it is geographically, you know, different. But I think what's driving a lot of it is that integrity, which, you know, I, I, I hold in high regard. Um, but beyond integrity, I mean, we're finding that developers are doing things they never dreamed of for new tenants just to just to get leases signed. 
And so if that's part of what's going on now, I don't know. I have a feeling that's going to probably continue. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I guess I could I could agree with that. Absolutely. I think that will bring us to our next kind of part of the discussion too, actually, is, you know, the future of commissioning and and the available technology. And I was I was really looking forward to this part of the discussion. Um, and I hope Mark speaks his mind because <laughs> he's been quiet so far. But, um, you know, there's a, there is just so much available technology, like we've been saying throughout the entirety of this episode. And, you know, my core understanding of commissioning and beliefs is boots on the ground. You know, you need to be there to see whatever system you're looking at operate. If it's an air handler, you need to see that chilled water valve open and close and your outside air dampers, you know, look at everything, feel, touch, smell, hear, you know, that all comes into commissioning. But you know, what the availability of technology and maybe the potential of people not wanting to get out or not wanting to be crowded or whatever, whatever, you know, people are going to maybe lean towards that technology to help with commissioning. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm interested to hear everybody's thoughts about it, you know, the adoption of the technology and will it help commissioning? Will it hurt commissioning? I don't know. Oh, it's got to help. How do you think it would hurt necessarily? Uh, uh, hey, I mean, I think that there's uh, plenty of appropriate applications of technology with the appropriate level of training and experience. I mean, somebody, I have a driver's license. You could put me in a Grand Prix F1 car right now and send me to an F1 track and, uh, you know, I could get a 15 minute, okay, this is what you do. And I would burn it into the wall in the first (laughs) turn. I'm just not the guy who has that level of experience to operate that level of technology. And I think you can make, you, you can say the same thing for uh, many, many uh, commissioning reports and commissioning agents that I've seen firsthand that have no business uh, signing anything on a commissioning report as being factually <laughs> accurate. So I, I agree. And if I were I'm not a guy who has any reluctance to use technology. I mean, I'm I'm all for it. It's been one of the most uh, single force multipliers over my career. And I've seen technology come a long way in my career, all the way from the introduction of cell phones and faxes to the, the level of automation that we have now, where technology is awesome. And the the formalization of the processes is absolutely necessary, but at the same time, you have to have a level of training that keeps pace with that for the appropriate application of that technology. Yeah, and and to the point of how how could it be worse? It's like kind of feeding on what Mark said. It could be worse if we don't go out there, if we don't put the right people to utilize the technology right, if we're just mindlessly you know accepting things at face value with without like you know you were mentioning you know my team will never just check vav boxes from a bms system never right right you, you right. put you put your head in the ceiling yep and you make sure that that actuator is driving you know open and closed and then there's no ifs ands or buts right but there are other you know potential people out there that that will trust um you know the bms uh, just, just yeah. looking at a face value and and, and listen I, I could argue it both ways right you want to make sure that the bms is good from this the get-go and then you have some you know better better understanding of doing it from the bms 
but technology to me is more like coupling that interaction that that human like commissioning to me is people it's people yeah like you know what i mean you could throw all the technology and processes and other things but it's about you know bringing everything together on a project and so I, the, you know, the interesting thing about fault detection and that technology is like we talked about, you set up the baseline accurately at the beginning, and then you can trust the data. And then when the results come in that tell you, you might be, you know, overcooling in a space, you know, you use that human brain power to figure out, okay, why? Let's go investigate. Let's see what's going on. So to me, I'm excited again about the new technology in the future, um, but it's coupled with that human interaction, I guess, to the extent that, you know, also we can leverage drones. I don't know. Like, I've been hearing about the drones are going to drop off my Amazon package. I've yet to see it. <laughs> it's um, going to happen. I feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. But is that is that going to happen also? And maybe, right, maybe, you know, more for architects maybe than engineers. But, you know, seeing roof shingles and the status of that, you know, where you don't have to be climbing on the roof is huge. Yep. Um, someone actually, I just got an email yesterday because we do some laser scanning as well. And I just got an email yesterday about um, that that robot dog from Boston Dynamics, I think it was. Oh yeah. Um, that now it does laser right. scanning of you know of machine yeah. rooms and stuff. So like that stuff is really cool to me. But again, it you know someone has to model it. It has to be accurate. Um, so it's all it's all coupled. I don't think we're going to get to the Terminator Doomsday scenario where robots are taking over. At least maybe in my generation. I don't know about my kids. Um, but, but again, it's all, it's all good stuff. In my opinion, we're, we're, we're going towards a, a, you know, a better world. Um, but it's not, it's not removing the need. Um, yeah, you can't supplement it with just people. You need people still. Yeah. I mean, it's the same, like you think of doctors, right? I like using analogies. Think of doctors, right? Lasers now do surgeries, but you know, is there a doctor in the room? Like, has it, has it reduced the need for, you know, that human oversight. I don't think, I don't think so. Yeah, no, that um, makes sense. Even telemedicine, you know, I, people say, Oh, I don't have to go to the doctor. Yeah. But you, you still need the, you still need the doctor. Right. <laughs> you got to be there right. sometimes to, to so, see, touch, whatever. So Ryan, I have a question from a process perspective. We have always kind of followed the, uh, ASHRAE process, which really, uh, requires slash requests the commissioning entity be engaged with the owner very early on, hopefully prior to uh, construction or even design in the commissioning process. How, what, what's your, your position on that, your process uh, engagement timeline, as far as uh, how you feel about that? Yeah. So you're referring to guideline zero and ASHRAE and, and it does say engaging the commissioning provider because in theory, if you look at the definition of commissioning and ensuring the uh, project is installed, documented, and operates in accordance with the owner's project requirements, in theory, they're, right. they're like the commissioning process, you know, um, is supposed to be, uh, again, you're, you're almost a branch of the owner's, you know, division, or you're, you're basically an extension of the owner. Yeah. Um, the, reality is that rarely happens. Um, and I think it rarely happens for, uh, there would have to be another podcast about this, but it really happens because at the end of the day, right, there, there is cost implications and yeah, it's money. It's money. That's right. Um, 
And so, you know, we find ourselves, I, I, I'll tell you, I, I flat out reject jobs that are done that ask me for, you know, commissioning to file. I say, you have to go to someone else. I won't do it. But, you know, can, can you be brought in, you know, after the engineer and after the 50% CDs? Sure, you can. Can you still provide a lot of value? A hundred percent. Is it better that your commissioning provider hired prior to bringing on the engineers so you can drive them to the owner's project requirements? I'll tell you, I write project owner's project requirements after the design is done sometimes. Um, but again, I, I still align the team to make sure we're all following the same path. So in a utopia, we're hired first. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, uh, that's interesting because you're exactly right. I think the, the that is the best of all possible worlds. If money were no object, and you could find a, a abundance of owners that were that agreed with that and said we can afford it, it would be perfect, and there would be a higher probability of better right. outcomes. But it just I just want to make clear though that it do, like the commissioning process doesn't necessarily provide less value if not brought on in that early phase it's just you start to potentially lose some opportunity um for added input earlier in the phasing right things may be found later um it may cost more money later because yep. be if it if it was earlier it was just some lines on a paper versus you know <laughs> actual purchasing um, so it's never a bad time again, except if you're called when the job is done and you need to file and then, uh, I don't know, you're, you're kind of out of luck. Agreed. We could do a whole episode about that. Yeah. I mean, honestly, and if you do get roped into that and, you know, we've been roped into it a couple of times with customers that have multiple sites, you know, in different States, et cetera, and you get brought in you inevitably end up as the guy who has to sleep with a guard outside their hotel door because everybody wants to kill you <laughs> yeah. at that point. I agree. Is there any final thoughts, anything we still want to keep talking about? Uh, anywhere we want to drive the conversation before it gets wrapped up? Boy, I don't. A lot, a lot to think about. I mean, there's the a lot to absorb. There's just a lot of content in there, guys. I, yeah. One of my favorite quotes from Ryan though was when he said commissioning is people it's about people I like that that, yeah. goes, that should go on a t-shirt maybe yeah there's another t-shirt oh boy <laughs> yes I've argued in the building commissioning association that our tagline should be it's the people stupid um, but obviously that was shot down a little blunt but no I, I agree with you and I think that helps keep the whole industry grounded as we get into this new you know, and it's always a new evolving technological landscape and the user experience gets better and easier, but the back end gets more complicated. And I don't know if I said it already, but we've lamented in previous times about just, you know, will people understand, you know, the site charts and the basic engineering that goes as the software becomes easier to use and to utilize. Yep. Just like you were saying with the doctors, you still need you know, a skilled, experienced person uh, involved. The people are essential to it. It's one of the limitations of what we do too, but it's uh, it's a given. It's, it, it, you're exactly right, Nick. Actually, I was on LinkedIn this morning and an uh, engineering firm had put up a little screenshot of four heat exchangers, three that, were, that showed flow rate and delta T 
and the last heat exchanger just showed uh, flow rate and you're supposed to solve for delta T and they ask, you know, what's the right answer? And I looked at the, looked at, and you couldn't really find a much simpler heat transfer equation and solved it in my head. And there were about 25 answers, 10 were wrong, 15 were right. And they had all used a uh, computer simulation. Interesting. Interesting. I'll have to look for this. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's a dangerous place. It is. But <clears throat> I, I would argue again that what part of what drives me um, in my regular job and in my presidency of the Building Commission Association is that this is a career choice that is is a primary career choice. It's now code required. This is no longer kind of like a subsidiary of another profession necessarily. This is a profession that you can choose. And there are some colleges across the country, University of Arizona is one of them that I know of, mm -hmm. um, that is uh, that this is a, um, uh, a you know a curriculum. Um, for commissioning. So we're going to have people over the next couple of years come out of school, essentially, you know, with that commissioning degree. Um, and I'm really excited about that. And so, of course, experience goes along with it. But you can say that goes along. You wouldn't hire an accountant, <laughs> you know, on their own or a doctor or, you know, an auto mechanic who who uh, doesn't know what they're doing either. Of course, experience is certainly a component. Um, but I'm excited about um you know, just just uh, a new all this fresh blood coming into the community, um, to this profession. And like Mark, like you were saying, you know, we have to make sure everyone's trained so they understand heat he transfer equations. Um, but at the end of the day, we're uh, we're excited to be in a good place. Absolutely, that's very promising. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Awesome, guys. I think this was a great episode. I hope to our listeners they left. Um, you know with a little bit more than what they started with. And I think we did a good job kind of covering commissioning and Ryan, it was really awesome to have you on. It was a, it was a great episode. Yeah. Very informative. Thanks. Yeah. Ryan. Well, thanks for having me. And if there's any questions, your listeners are craving more about a particular subject. You just let me know. Alrighty guys. Thanks for tuning in. Ryan, thanks for joining us and you know, Nick, Jim and Mark, the building hot rodders. This was a great podcast episode. Stay tuned. Next week, we'll be discussing uh, forensic analysis, getting to the root cause of the problem. So it should be a great episode to cover. And with that being said, have a great day, everybody.